you have a Bible, and hopefully you do, this is a Christian gathering. <laughs> Christian believers, we believe the Bible. Say Bible. Bible. It's, just like, it's just like gender. It's one of the, you can't take that for granted these days. We believe the Bible. Amen. Gospel of John, that's in the Bible. Chapter 21. Now, this is a fascinating chapter. Chapter 20 and 21 got John's perspective on post resurrection encounters with Jesus. It's, there's a variety of things here. It's an intriguing bit of scripture. And we're going to be interacting here with the first 14 verses of John 21 and just reflecting on this scripture, hopefully in a way that encourages you today, but as we start out, anthropologists who study tribal cultures observe a phenomenon that they call liminality. For those of you who are taking notes, I just threw a big word at you. It's not, not liminality, L-I-M-I-N, lemon. A-L-I-T-Y, something like that. Google it later. And so in tribal societies, you'll often have an experience of going through some kind of a ceremony. It might be where a young man is being recognized as a member of the tribe. And so what these initiation ceremonies will be like. First, the young men get called out of the tribe, out of the community, out of their state as being boys. And on the other side of this, this initiation rite, they come out as men. So they leave boyhood and become men. But in between, there's this phase of liminality or betwixt and between where they have left that, but they're not yet that. That's what Jordan crossings are like. When you're in the middle of the river and there's a wall of water right there, you're in a liminal state. You have left wilderness, but not yet entered promised land. This is a very disconcerting place in which to find yourself. Liminal states are confusing, frustrating, and difficult to understand because they expose questions about our identity. In a liminal state... We begin wondering, who am I? Children of Israel, all those who left Egypt had died. The only ones crossing the Jordan other than Joshua, Caleb, had been born in the wilderness. The only thing they knew was manna on the ground on a daily basis. Now, we all love the idea of promised land, but promised land living is very different from what happened in the wilderness. 
You get on the other side of the Jordan, the manna stops. You got to pull out your agricultural equipment and start going to work. Moses isn't here anymore. Joshua is a good guy, but who is he really? I don't know about this. So in these liminal states, you're wondering, what's going on here? You feel like your existence is being exposed and questioned. Anthropologists call that a liminal state. And what I see in John 21 is Jesus dealing gently with a man who's caught in a liminal state, this period between the resurrection and Pentecost. Now, if you're a disciple in this moment, it's simultaneously beautiful and very confusing. Like the children of Israel, you kind of think you're going somewhere good, but it feels just a little bit different, and it's kind of confusing. So we start reading here in chapter 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Now again, he in the previous chapter, he had done it twice. First time, Thomas wasn't with him. One week later, Thomas was. That was the Jesus-Thomas dialogue in the second half of John chapter 20. So this is the third time he's appearing. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, called Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. Now, as I was reading this, it reminded me of my grandfather. Now, I mentioned Lumber City the other day, and my grandfather uh, lived a lot of his adult life in a town called Macray, Georgia, right at the top tip of Telfair County, Georgia. And I used to go down there often, we would, for Thanksgiving and Christmas and summer breaks and things. And he used to take me fishing on a place called the Okmulgee River down in Georgia. And Jacksonville, Georgia, right there, is where the world's largest bass is caught. There's a plaque. World's largest bass, Okmulgee River, Georgia. And you say, you know, why would he, you know, take me there to the, surely there's some better fish or just as good a fish somewhere else. And the reason that he liked to go fishing there was that he was from there. That was where he grew up. His family, his dad, and he's just a little baby, moved him across the river, and he grew up in the swamp right there. And I remember being with him down there, walking through the woods, and just him reminiscing and pointing out, here's the, this is the, where the old road was, and I got my mule stuck in this muddy ditch over here one day. And, you know, it, you can get the man out of the swamp, but you can't always get the swamp out of the man, and he eventually did grow up, uh, you know, move into the big metropolis of Macray. But, you know, I think he liked to go back to the Okmulgee River because it was familiar and it was also a place of retreat away from a world that was changing so fast he really didn't understand it. 
We used to go down there and go fishing, and that's what, that's what I see Peter doing here. This is a retreat place for Peter, and rather than getting on with the mission of God, Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. You know, my grandfather used to wear this hat. said, I'll do it tomorrow. I'm going fishing today. And that's exactly what Peter does here with the mission of God. In John chapter 20, the first time Jesus shows up, he, he reminds him of a mission. He says, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. I mean, his first words, peace be with you, guys. We're here for mission. This isn't just some add-on to the Christian life. That was his first post-resurrection sermon to his disciples. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And then here, just the next chapter later, Peter's like, I'm going fishing. Now, in some ways, you know, as Peter's caught in this, this liminal phase between the resurrection and Pentecost, it's a little bit understandable because th this was an unstable period. Jesus in these chapters seems a little bit unpredictable. He'd just sort of be with them, and then it kind of go somewhere. It wasn't like he would say, guys, this is a great session. Look, we're going to be back tomorrow. We're going to be back Tuesday morning, 9 o'clock, Starbucks, bottom of Mount of Olives. That's where I'll meet you, and it's going to be great. He, he didn't do that. He just kind of hit go, and they didn't know when he might show up again. And so here in this moment, these disciples seem unsure about what it is they're supposed to be doing. And so in this moment, Peter says, I'm going fishing. And, you know, we all have these kinds of people in our lives, and you know people like this. You might be one of them, where when they say, I'm going fishing, the whole crowd says, well, we're coming with you. If you're going, we're going, and we'll be there. P Peter was that kind of an influential guy. But as you look at this, how is it, how is it that the guy Jesus calls the rock, the guy who, in just a couple of chapters, is going to preach the message that births the New Testament church. The guy, he's one of the greatest preacher theologians ever. He wrote part of the Bible. This is Peter. How is it that he ends up on a fishing boat? Here's the deal. It's one thing to believe in the resurrected Lord. It's another thing to re-engage with the Lord's mission. If you look at Peter's life, in some ways, this is understandable. Think about his life over these past few weeks. He was with Jesus and the other disciples as they came into Jerusalem on the Palm Sunday with all the crowds cheering. They came into Jerusalem like conquering heroes. Now, can you imagine what the disciples were feeling in that moment? They're like, yeah. This is what we signed up for. All these messianic prophecies that we thought Jesus was the guy. All this Old Testament stuff that he's been talking about. Wow, we're coming in. The crowds are cheering. Guys, this thing is really going to happen. It's like being part of a little business startup and you think it's going to work and it might work and then it works. And you're like, this is great. After these sort of 
two or three years. They, they've been dissing Jesus. They've been disrespecting him. And now they've, they've seen the light. Guys were coming into Jerusalem. But Jesus, being Jesus, doesn't quite play along. Rather than playing the political games and doing the right kind of PR, he utterly rejects the advice from his marketing department and he goes all confrontational with the religious leaders. Rather than appeasing them, as you look at this last week in Jerusalem, Jesus is ratcheting up the pressure to the point that there's this plot against his life. And so Peter's watching this and he's like, no, no, Jesus, this is going the wrong way. Let's back this up. And then Peter finds himself in the strangest supper ever on Thursday night of that week. Now, on one hand, Jesus is Jesus, and he does some of the most profound teaching he's ever done. He teaches about love. He teaches about bearing fruit. He unpacks some really profound stuff. But then he does some really weird stuff. Gets down like a servant and washes his disciples' feet. And then he serves this meal that he calls his body and his blood. Now, if you're a disciple and you're on this roller coaster ride, this is this is weird. This is this is different. This, this is liminal. This, this is this doesn't feel comfortable at all. And then, to cap it all off, Jesus says, one of you is gonna betray me. And then he looks Peter in the face and says, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. So just five days earlier, Peter was part of the victory team. And now the wheels are falling off the wagon. Then the worst day ever of his life. That night, when he should be praying, he falls asleep. And he runs away. Jesus gets crucified on Saturday. The worst Saturday ever. Peter's hiding with all the other disciples. And then Sunday, it all starts to turn around. The resurrected Lord shows up. And then a week later, he shows up again. And it's a victory moment. But it's been so draining so confusing, such an emotional ride. The issue isn't that Peter doesn't believe. No, Peter believes. He has seen the resurrected Lord twice at this point. But the emotional toll was so strong that rather than getting on with the mission of God, Peter says, guys, I'm going fishing. I don't know about all this other stuff, but I'm going fishing. Now, Fishing on the Sea of Galilee often happened at night. And that was so that the fish could go on sale, fresh fish in the morning. So in the morning, people could come and get their fish. And it was hard work out there all night, casting these nets, pulling them in. And, you know, it could be especially frustrating on a night like this when you weren't catching anything. But for Peter, after the emotional roller coaster he's been on, the most beautiful place in the world. Moon overhead, waves gently lapping the boat, back in this place of familiarity, doing what he had done all his life. It was comfortable. It was secure. It was a safe place 
of retreat. Regarding mission, regarding the purposes of God, Peter was thinking what my grandfather used to wear on his hat. I'll do it tomorrow. Today, I'm going fishing. So when we look at Peter in this moment, it's in some ways, it, he's a picture of a sidelined Christian. He believes. He loves Jesus. He's, he's a believer. He hasn't backslid, you know, it, but, but he's not engaged with the bigger purposes of God. Just plugging along in his Christian life, sidelined, not effective, living in a comfortable place. The toll, the emotional drain of these last few weeks have been so intense He's just disengaged from mission, and he's happy to be there on the boat. Have you ever been in a place like that? Have you ever been in a place where you said, you know, I believe all this mission stuff sounds great, but I got to go fishing. I got to take a hit the pause button here and go, go get on a boat somewhere and just listen to the waves and play with some nets and Look at the moonlight, and it's a tough place to be. You know, you might be there today. That's exactly where I was after five years of living in Ukraine. God did some amazing things. It was 10 years of ministry, five years of living there, and in the autumn of 1999, we came back, and I was done. I had done my tour of duty as a missionary. It was great. We praised Jesus for it, but I was done. At that point in life, my only greatest dream was to come back to my familiar place of Black Mountain, North Carolina, and just be here. But God had other plans. My first time back at our home church, my good friend that you met Friday evening, Jim Lafoon, happened to be speaking. And as you know, sometimes he doesn't just teach the Bible. Sometimes he comes to tampering in our lives with prophetic words from God. And so on this night, I didn't even know Jim was going to be there that night. Walk in, and he's there, teaches the Bible, and then he's going to prophesy. Who's the first person he calls up? <laughs> Tom, come on up. And his word's real simple. You think you're done. You're not done. I'm going to send you back to the nations. I'm thinking, great. <laughs> church planning's hard. Cross-cultural church planning's really hard. Cross-cultural church planning in a dysfunctional place like Ukraine is very, very difficult. And I was done. But God had other plans. Now, as we look at Peter here, this is where he was. And the thing that Jesus does with him is very gentle, and it's very precious. Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus gives him an object lesson. Now, if we look at the end of verse 3, there's this little very key phrase there. They went and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And then we keep reading, and it says, Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. And yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. 
he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land and about a hundred yards off. Now, this was this had to be a frustrating moment for Peter because his, his return to civilian life wasn't working out the way he had hoped. He had big visions of reestablishing his fishing monopoly there on this bit of the Sea of Galilee, and they caught nothing. And then to add insult to injury, some stranger over on the shore is calling out, Children, how's the fishing going, guys? Now, in that kind of a moment, that's not the kind of question that you just want to hear. But it's interesting, they didn't realize that it was Jesus. Now, here they kind of have an excuse because it's sort of in the twilight or you know, early morning moment and they can't clearly see. But this post-resurrection body of Jesus, it's a real body, but it's a glorified body. And it's, it's not always exactly immediately discernible. So they don't know that it's... Jesus, and but they're, they're at such a, a point, rather than getting frustrated, they say, okay, and they do this thing, and when they pull this in, and this big catch of fish here, John gets the revelation. It's Jesus. Now, what is it about this catch that would clue them in that it's Jesus? Well, this has happened one time before in Luke chapter Five. It's a very similar situation. The disciples fished all night. Uh, Jesus says, guys, go out and you'll, you'll, you'll press into the deeper water. You'll catch something. Peter reluctantly gives it a go, and they catch this huge catch of fish. And so when this happens here, John connects the dots and says, aha, it's Jesus. And that's where two things happen simultaneously. When Peter hears it's Jesus... Like, forget the fishing. My Lord is on the coast. I'm going to go see him. So Peter abandons fishing, jumps on the rest of the guys. We got all these fish. What are we going to do with them? So they call to the other boat. The other boat comes in, and they bring all this to the shore. And that's where Jesus begins some, some very delicate pastoral ministry, starting in verse 9 here. When they go out on the land, they see a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled them ashore, a large, uh, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come have breakfast. And now some of the disciples, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew that it was the Lord. Jesus came took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. Now, this was the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, the big reason John has this in here, and the point of emphasis is this confirmation in the disciples that this 
is the resurrected Lord. The, the apostles are incredibly, impeccably clear about rooting all of this in historicity. These were real, genuine encounters. And what's unique about this one is that it's not locked away in an upper room somewhere where they're having a prayer meeting. This is out in public. This is the Sea of Galilee. This is physical. There, there's fish. There's, there's bread. There, there's fire. This is a physical public encounter and they can't just hide this away and when they get there Jesus is confirming not only is he raised from the dead but he's going to be with them in the stuff of life he's got breakfast for the disciples on the beach what a, what a beautiful thing beach breakfast served by Jesus roasted fish and bread I'm getting hungry already but deeper than that He's manifesting not only that he's raised from the dead, but he's teaching them a lesson about the mission to which he's called them. Because as we read what John writes here in verse 11, he notes a very interesting detail. So Simon Peter went aboard, hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Now say that with me. The net was not torn. Now, there are 153 large fish worth keeping. These are the ones they counted. That's a big catch. But the fascinating thing here is the net is this statement that the net was not torn. Now, the reason John puts in that detail is because in Luke chapter 5, the first time Jesus gives his disciples a miraculous catch, Luke records the, the opposite detail. The catch was so big that the nets were breaking. But this time, they're able to preserve the catch that Jesus gives them. After they've been with Jesus for three and a half years, they've been trained by Jesus, they, they're now following Jesus, they're able to preserve the catch that he gives. John has put this in here on purpose to teach us something about ministry. Jesus is teaching them and us that he wants to build a kind of ministry that can preserve the catch that he gives. It's not a difficult thing for Jesus to give a catch. The difficulty is for us to be faithful with preserving that which God entrusts to us. Now, there are three observations that I make from this text as we try to bring this down to some some application for us. First of all, following means fishing. Jesus has made this clear with his disciples from the beginning. Mark chapter 1, verse 17. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now somehow we try to entertain ideas that actually somehow we can follow and not fish. That fishing is a a vocation for the specialists or the professionals, but that's not the Jesus paradigm. Jesus links fishing with following right at the very beginning. His message in Mark chapter 1, first he says, Repent and believe the gospel and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. 
And in Luke chapter 5, he emphasizes this again after he gives his disciples this miraculous catch in Luke 5. He tells Peter, look, this was good, but the point is this. From now on, you will be catching men. The point of this story is that post-resurrection, in this liminal state, Peter forgot about fishing for men. Peter went back to fishing for fish. By giving his disciples this extraordinary catch, he's reminding them, guys, you're not here for fish. You're here for people. Now, if we pause on this, just like Peter, there are all kinds of things that can distract us from this ministry of fishing. We can all come up with a thousand and one excuses or things or distractions or that push this to the margins of our lives. And it's always justified, just like it was justified for Peter to end up on this boat. You know, we like being high-octane alpha families that pack our lives with so much activity, there's just no margin left over for fishing. But that's what Jesus is calling us to. A wholehearted follower of Jesus is going to be involved in fishing. But this brings me to the second idea because when I picture, when I say this word fishing, you might get the wrong picture in your mind. The second point is this, fishing is a team sport. Now, when I talked about my granddad and I going fishing, you probably saw us sitting on a boat, casting rod and reel, or putting a cricket or a worm on the end of that spinner and throwing it out there. And, you know, you're exactly right. That was the kind of fishing that we did. You could go to the catfish pond and watch and see all, everybody sort of lined up individually with their cane pole and you know, they're, they're fishing. That's not the kind of fishing that Jesus is describing here. This was net fishing. What is net fishing? It's a team sport. Everybody is involved. Everybody has a place to play. In other words, the point here is not so much personal evangelism, although that is a part of it. Jesus is painting a corporate kind of team picture. You know, these, these boats that they would go fishing in, they were 26 feet long, five feet wide, four feet deep. They, they, were, they could serve a, a, a crew of five men and, and, and a whole catch of fish. So there, there's this team dynamic that's going on. One person's pulling on the oars, another one's steering with the rudder, and two or three are working these nets. Everybody is involved. It's a team sport, and that's the way that God has called us to go about this. And the third thing is that Jesus builds strong nets. Fishing is effective when the nets do not break. And that's the big point John makes here. The nets did not break. Now, if we turn over two chapters, we find ourselves in Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, what happens? Peter preaches, 3,000 people respond to the word, get baptized, and are added to the church. Now think about your church for a minute. 3,000 people being added in a day. 
Does that put some net stress on the systems? Oh, yeah. Absolutely, it does. Jesus is giving his disciples an object lesson that not just he can bring a big catch, but that they have the capacity to preserve the catch that he gives them. Now, we come back to this idea that Peter was here caught in this liminal phase. Peter was in a moment of crossing the Jordan. He had not yet entered into this post-Pentecost promised land. Once he got there, everything was clear and secure. But in this moment where we find him in John 21, he's caught in this in-between stage. Now, in an in-between stage, in the liminal stage, the trick is this. We have a tendency to make bad decisions. That's what Peter did. He said, forget the mission. I'm going back to fishing. And in this moment, Jesus gently comes, doesn't rebuke, gives him an object lesson. And then in addition to the object lesson, what's waiting for them on the beach? It's breakfast. There are times that Jesus pulls us close to his side so that he can gently whisper in our ears, guys, this is what we're here for. And regarding this mission, and all the stuff in our lives that tries to come in and push it out. This is where Jesus is teaching his disciples. After breakfast, it's time to go to work. And what he wants us to be able to say about everything else in our lives, I'll do all that tomorrow. Today, I'm going fishing. Not fishing for fish, fishing for people. So this is the mission that God has given us. So as we find ourselves in a liminal phase, in this liminal moment, a transitional phase of being in the middle of the Jordan River, what Jesus is inviting us is to get back in touch with the original mission that he gave us. So let's go to God in prayer. Just ask him to seal this in our hearts today. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for the gentleness with which you came to Peter. Father, we confess that we can so easily identify with him Lord, all of us in different times and places, through the emotional, physical, life stress that hits us, Lord, rather than actively engaging your mission, just like Peter here would say, I'm going fishing. We want to retreat back to a place of comfort, security, familiarity. Lord, some of us may be in that place today. Lord, we thank you that what you did here with Peter is that you, you didn't leave him in this, this transitional phase, but you came and gently reminded him 
that he was here for bigger purposes. God, I thank you that your hand is on each person that's here today. And Father, there may be some people who feel like they're stuck in this moment between the now and the not yet. Lord, but every person here has this divine assignment from you. And Lord, if anyone has somehow disengaged from that or retreated from it or been distracted or gotten on the wrong boat, Lord, I'm coming now. I'm asking that you would come now by your Holy Spirit and gently bring the encouragement, the hope, and whisper in their ear, oh God. Lord, I thank you that you've got a breakfast for us, a, a place of nourishment there on the beach for us. You call us aside so that you can feed us and send us back out into your harvest. Father, we recognize that the enemy of our soul tries to come, to sabotage, to distract, to destroy. Lord, in Jesus' name, you know, it, just as we're waiting before God this moment, if you have been in that place and you'd say, you know, that's where I am today, I feel like somehow I've, I've gotten off course. You know, the Holy Spirit's here just to, to gently draw you back. Would you just raise your hand so I can pray with you? this morning mm. Father I thank you so much Lord that you don't forget us shelve us and push us to the side Lord I thank you you care so deeply for each one of these precious believers Lord we just speak to the lies of the devil that have tried to come in we just say no in Jesus' name. Those lies that have said your, your best days are behind you. It's time to just go find a boat. No in Jesus' name. Lord, I just ask, Father, that you would come by your spirit and refresh and encourage, feed and equip. Bring your restoration and your hope, O oh God. Lord, you're so good. You're so good, Lord Jesus. We thank you. Father, I thank you for every life here. And I pray, Lord, Lord, that you would continue to work, that where there have been misaligned destinies, that you'd bring them back on track, O oh God. Just hear the Lord saying that. I am not done with you. I am not done with you. There's more. There's more. There's more. Father, I pray that you grant us the faith to lay hold of that for which you have laid hold of us. God, I pray that you'd seal your encouragement in our hearts, O oh God, that we can walk forward in faith. We ask this, O oh God, 
In Jesus' name, amen.